Welcome to Your True North, a program that explores how values act as a compass directing our lives and work. Inspiring guests tell how key events and influential figures shaped their values and how they've used those values to create a life rich in meaning, accomplishments, and personal satisfaction. Your True North is hosted by Cindy Camp. Are you seeking your true north? Then welcome. Welcome to Your True North. I'm your host, Cindy Camp. Your True North is a program that explores values as a compass for life's journey. Today, I will be talking with Dennis Cohn, who was raised in the Mennonite Church and is now a member of the First Unitarian Church of Chicago. For many years, he has worked with not-for-profit organizations and churches as a management consultant. When he was in his early 50s, Dennis returned to school to pursue a doctoral degree to explore Christian perspectives on war. As a young man during the Vietnam War, Dennis chose to spend 18 months in federal prison as a draft resistor rather than do the community service offered by the U.S. government. It is my pleasure to welcome you, Dennis Cohn. I also want to ask you about the other thing you're currently involved with, which is working on a Ph.D. The fact that you started a Ph.D. in your 50s makes you quite unusual. I think most people at that stage of life would really hesitate to commit to such a, a long and a rigorous program. I'd just love you to tell us a little bit about what made you decide to do that. It was 11 years ago in the dead of winter in February that I was probably listening to uh, the national news and I was aware of all kinds of little wars and skirmishes all, all around the globe. And it seemed to me that in all of these cases, both sides claimed that God was on their side. And uh, of course, that creates a kind of conundrum when we hear that. You know, what's, what's the uh, process of bringing God into uh, some of the largest political issues that a nation faces going to war? So I sat down at my computer one evening and typed out uh, four or five pages of what I thought of as a research prospectus. And that was just simply a set of, of questions arising out of uh, history, political science, sociology, psychology, religion, uh, just a, a long list of questions uh, looking at how religion becomes part of a national conversation on going to war. And I started sending this uh, through email to friends and asking for books to recommend. And uh, I had a good number of friends that had touched on this field and were able to advise me and, and send me a, a bibliography or something like that. And then uh, in 2006, I gave myself a sabbatical that I uh, said I wanted to think about my future. So I spent some time on the East Coast and the West Coast and in Europe. About that time, a guy named David Little at Harvard responded to me and he said, uh, Dennis, you're asking really good questions. I could see you uh, shaping this into a PhD program. So I came back from that, and around Christmas time that year, 2006, began applying to graduate schools uh, to do PhD work. Was accepted at uh, uh, Chicago Theological Seminary. I had heard a year earlier the president of that school, Susan Thistleswaite, uh, give an address at a peace conference at Bluffton University, another Mennonite college in Ohio. And I was confident that uh, in that academic setting and with access to the resources of other universities in Chicago, 
that I could put together a very uh, dynamic program. So the last seven years I've been doing that, and I'm about two-thirds through with my dissertation now. And, uh, still uh, pretty um, motivated and excited. Uh, I've seen uh, research on life cycle patterns, and particularly a lot of men plateau and decline in their 50s. Uh, women are often taking off and finding kind of new, new vitality. Uh, but some of the research shows that uh, a lot of men uh, do uh, move into some level of stagnation. And I just didn't want to be one of that kind of horde of, of men falling into decline. So I was looking for some new challenges. And I was ready to uh, get out of a, a, a difficult marriage and uh, leave behind uh, some of the uh, constrictions of my Mennonite tradition uh, so that coming to Chicago, uh, being at Chicago Theological Seminary, uh, joining uh, First Unitarian Church of Chicago in Hyde Park, these were a number of kind of uh, uh, new vistas for me to uh, get excited uh, in my 50s, and now I'm 62 and uh, still pretty excited and uh, not sure what the future will bring. Will I earn my livelihood for the next 10 years off of my old skills doing management consulting, or might I get some traction in the international arena and do some work in Pakistan or Israel or Washington or New York on some of these large international questions? Your dissertation topic is really intriguing because you're looking at war and peace and the Christian tradition and some of the, the big sort of figures of the latter part of well, the second half of the 20th century, Billy Graham and Martin Luther King Jr., um, and comparing and contrasting the sorts of conclusions that they drew or the way that they thought about Christianity and war and peace. Could you give us a little preview of what you're going to be concluding in your dissertation? Right. It's uh, been a, a good way to get into this topic to look at these two major figures in American religion. Billy Graham was really concerned about chaos in the world. So he gave a lot of legitimation to police forces and military forces that God ordains these institutions to bring order to uh, selfish human beings. And uh, we, because of, of this uh, greed and selfishness, we, uh, we have to use force. And uh, he had been an ardent uh, anti-communist ever since his kind of public uh, appearance on the American stage in the mid-40s as soldiers were coming back uh, from the war. In fact, one of his very early large gatherings was in Soldier Field in Chicago, I think in 1946. So his anti-communism uh, gave him a kind of momentum to uh, join with uh, President Johnson and President Nixon in uh, supporting this supposed um, war to uh, contain communism in, in Asia. So uh, I think for him it was that he had this kind of negative view of human nature that had to be controlled. And military forces are one of the ways uh, that we have to do this. Now in contrast, uh, Martin Luther King, growing up in the black church, had a sense that humans are capable of kind of shaping their lives and their institutions. And uh, King, of course, felt the heavy hand of a Southern legal system that, uh, that really was very oppressive. So he saw sin more in institutional terms, whereas Graham saw it as being uh, kind of hidden in the individual human heart. 
So King was ready to uh, work at shifting policy and institutions. And then um, around 1965, I think he began looking at the Vietnam War as maybe an extension of a kind of racism, that there was a, 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 a note of white supremacy, that uh, the white Europeans, whether it was the French or now the Americans, really had a right or a role to uh, shape uh, the politics and the lives of, of people in, uh, in Vietnam. And uh, he saw how that was misused domestically, that white supremacy. And I can't think he came to feel that the American war in Vietnam was an extension of this uh, kind of uh, racist and, uh, and oppressive ideology in America. So for him to oppose racism at home and internationally uh, made perfect sense to him. Although when he first made his major public address in April of 1967 at the Riverside Church in New York City, uh, even his white allies and his black supporters said he was getting in way over his head, that he really shouldn't be addressing uh, such a delicate international issue as the Vietnam War. But uh, that, that address, and I would encourage people to search that out on the internet, um, Riverside Church, 1967, I think is one of the deepest statements of political analysis of the 20th century on America's role in the world. So he proved to be very prophetic that uh, he said toward the end of that address that not only should we be concerned about Vietnam, but there's this deeper tendency uh, in America toward uh, imperialism. And uh, we will be uh, protesting other wars in other parts of the world unless America turns around. And of course, in, in the last uh, decade, our um, adventures into Afghanistan and uh, Iraq have proved very costly. And I think uh, most Americans now say very foolish that, uh, that uh, we haven't gotten the benefits from those wars that were promised by, by the Pentagon. Yeah, that Riverside Sermon is um, not as well known as some of Dr. King's other speeches, but is probably the most um, important speech, in my opinion, as well. Uh, when you study the, the sort of comprehensive worldview that he um, expresses in that speech, not only against, as you said, war and imperialism, but racism and materialism, it's really a, a powerful, today, maybe even more so than when he delivered it in 1967, I'm curious because, you know, as you're talking about uh, Billy Graham and also Martin Luther King Jr., both of them pointing to the same book, talking about seemingly the same God, the same religion, and yet drawing such wildly different conclusions about the role of the church in, in war making and peacemaking. Any thoughts for us about that, about what it says about human nature, about the nature of religion, or um, just some of these in, in, inherent human um, problems around war and, and peace? In my research, I've found it very helpful to look at some models coming out of developmental psychology, particularly an American psychologist, Claire W. Graves, and then uh, a religious thinker and ethical ethicist, uh, James Fowler. And they look at how our minds change as we develop, as we begin to be able to uh, see broader horizons to work with and see more complexity. And um, one of the things that I've concluded is that uh, 
In the earlier stages of human development, our natural emotional response to new situations or surprises is often fear. And on the international stage, that fear can be translated then into anger and hate and ready to go to war against the adversary. So I think that all traditional religions and all fundamentalisms have this close kinship with fear. And uh, whenever I watch Fox News, I'm aware of how much fear is being generated by their stories. And of course, they reach the conservative half of the American public. Uh, and, uh, and Billy Graham, his um, uh, 1965 book that I draw on heavily is called World Aflame. And it's feared, filled with fear. Uh, and fear leads people to, uh, to choose war. In some of the more complex developmental stages where I would put King, uh, often the emotional reflex and response to novelty or some surprise is curiosity and empathy. So that I'm really very interested in how we humans develop and our emotional life shifts. So one of the things in my dissertation and going forward that I want to look at is how do we uh, move people from reflexive responses of fear to what I think of as more constructive of curiosity and empathy. And international travel might be one of those things. Cross-cultural studies in our universities uh, might be one of those things. So that's one of the areas where I see uh, a way of explaining how these two leaders, Graham and King, or today, the, in the contemporary Christian context, people can have so much disagreement on uh, how to respond. And then another angle that I've looked at is that we all carry, I think, an ideology with us that filters perception, that gives us a sense of uh, who has legitimate authority, who should use power in our society. And the way I've categorized these two uh, leaders is that Billy Graham carried the ideology of anti-communism so that everything he saw on the international scene had to fit in with his notion of the sort of a cosmic war between the Christian capitalists and the communist atheists. Uh, Martin Luther King, on the other hand, was beginning to follow the liberation struggles in Africa particularly. And he traveled to India and had a sense of Gandhi's uh, nonviolent struggle for liberation there. So I came to see that uh, King had the ideology of anti-colonialism. His speech at Riverside Church was actually authored in large part by Vincent Harding, a black Mennonite pastor. And I talked with Harding several years ago before he died, and I said, uh, were you folks in the midst of uh, an anti-colonial struggle in uh, the, the mid-60s? And he said, uh, yes, we were. We didn't use that language. But in hindsight, uh, anti-colonialism was a large part of our global agenda. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking for ways of understanding how Christians in America can read the same Bible, claim to worship the same God, but come out in such different ways on major issues of foreign policy. You're listening to Your True North, a show that explores how values act as a compass for life's journey. Now let's return to the program, Already in Progress. Well, as you look back over your life 
and your your work in so many areas, your studies. Um, can you just talk a little bit about how your core values have been realized? Let's pick up on one of those, uh, and that is uh, empathy. The research shows that that is probably the key emotional competency of effective corporate leaders in America. Daniel Goleman is one of the leaders in that, that research. So that uh, the ability to uh, kind of understand the ideas and the emotional tone of people around us is uh, very, very crucial for effective corporate leadership in America. So this is very pragmatic, fits in with the market economy. You can do all the th things that traditional Americans have wanted to do in terms of work hard and, and be uh, creative and, and create wealth. Um, but empathy is one of those very key uh, attributes. I've been uh, teaching a leadership course in a master's in business administration program at Bluffton University in Ohio for 10 years. And we spent about half the course on uh, emotional intelligence and helping people think about empathy as a very practical uh, resource in corporate leadership. And then I was, I was also er earlier touching on the role of empathy in international affairs, of, of how uh, some Americans have moved away from the reflex, reflex of fear to the reflex of empathy and curiosity. And, you know, in, in preparation for this conversation uh, today, Cindy, I was thinking about the American news media. In 12 or 13 years of war with the Taliban in Afghanistan, I can't recall a single time where American newspapers or media have given us an inside view of how the Taliban thinks. So we have been facing an enemy that we don't know. And there's something pretty insane about that. So if more Americans or more media executives or more reporters had this uh, resource of curiosity and empathy, maybe we could understand the mind and the agenda and the interests of the Taliban. And chances are, eventually, we will achieve a negotiated political settlement with the Taliban, that that is the way most wars end that one group is not entirely vanquished. So one of my core values is empathy, and I see it applied domestically to corporate leadership. I see it applied internationally to, uh, to foreign policy. So that would be one of the largest examples that I could come up with quickly. What gives meaning to your life? Um, I've been uh, pondering this question, and... Uh, in sort of an ironic way, the first impulse or response I have takes me back to some of the reading I've done in recent years uh, to a philosopher named Ludwig Feuerbach, writing in Germany in 1841. Uh, his major work was The Essence of Christianity. And um, he noticed that a lot of Christians attribute their lives to being dependent on God. And as he investigated that more closely, he came to the conviction that we are really dependent on nature, the air we breathe, the water we have, the soil, the plants. So we're heavily dependent on nature. And then we're also social beings. We're dependent on our culture. 
and the groups that are around us, our families, our neighborhoods, our communities. So he came out saying that if we look a little deeper, this talk about God could really be talk about nature and culture. So those are the two directions I go to when I think of of what is meaningful for me. Nature, uh, I have the opportunity to jog and bike and in the winter cross-country ski along the shore of Lake Michigan, up and down the Chicago waterfront. And it's fantastic. You know, I can be in the city and in nature at the same time. So I'm, I'm doing that uh, several times a week, sometimes every day, uh, and I just love it. So being in nature is uh, very, very meaningful for me. And then think of all the aspects of culture that all of us experience on a daily or weekly basis. It might be uh, the architecture and the skyline of Chicago. It might be music that I hear live in Chicago or CDs that I have in my living room. Uh, it could be... Uh, art that hangs on my wall or at the Art Institute. It could be uh, simply being part of a parade or a festival downtown, Uh, being part of a church. Every uh, Sunday morning, uh, most Sunday mornings, I'm uh, with my church community at uh, First Unitarian Church of Chicago in Hyde Park. Uh, We hear readings of uh, great wisdom. Uh, We sing songs. Uh, The architecture of our church is a kind of medieval cathedral kind of look, which is inspiring. So um, uh, nature and culture are the big categories. And then within that is having uh, good friends close at hand and uh, interesting and curious and creative friends. So that uh, those are some of the things that keep me going. And then I'm always invested in my daughter, who is 26 by now, and I do... um, keep in regular touch with uh, my mother on the other side of the generational spectrum. She's in a retirement community in an assisted living program at age 93 and still moving around on her own and having a good time and uh, watching uh, Kansas State and Kansas University basketball this time of year, some of her favorite pastimes. Our radio audience includes, of course, some of the university students here at St. Xavier. And I always like to find out if you have any advice for young people, whether about, I guess, career and how to integrate values into career, but also into life, how to keep values somewhere near the center as, um, as they make big decisions about what they're going to do when they leave college. You know, one of the uh, tasks of culture is to prepare the next generation. Uh, In some ways, that's a definition of culture. Everything that an older generation hands on to a younger generation is culture. That's what we have. Um, So I I have uh, four things that I've thought of uh, around this issue of uh, talking to uh, uh, younger people. One would be to take time each day to wonder, to wander, and to dream. To, to not pick our, pack our lives so full of, of tasks and responsibilities that we squeeze out uh, some of the, the slow but creative time. And also take time each day to fit the pieces of life into a beautiful whole. I think, I think probably our modern and postmodern age uh, threatens us with fragmentation more than any human generation. 
our uh, instant communication, our, our smartphones, uh, we're constantly pulled in many, many kind of directions. So taking some time to try to fit the pieces together uh, every day. And uh, I would also say it's, it's so important to nurture a deep love for self, others, and the world. Now, there would be some religion that would say, you know, kind of ignore yourself and focus on others. But I think uh, uh, long-term, that's pretty destructive. But if we can, uh, can uh, get ourselves connected with ourselves, with others, and the world in uh, kind of a resonant, loving manner, uh, then we have a lot going for us. And I would also say uh, keep looking to the horizon for something new. Uh, and that's one of the roles of, of each new generation is to somehow throw off the baggage of our parents. You know, Freud kind of crystallized this in an attempt to, to kill the father. Well, none of us are really that blatant, but, but we all have some need to throw off the baggage of that older generation that has become encrusted, that is stagnant and sterile. So each generation, I think, uh, has to look to the horizons uh, for something new. It's part of the way human cultures work, and, uh, and that's good. And to, uh, to challenge old ways and to come up with new ways. And certainly, my generation, uh, the baby boomers now uh, in our 60s, we have left plenty of challenges to our children and grandchildren. We are not heading toward utopia on this earth, but we are heading toward uh, increasingly complex challenges. Um, but I'm in line with the psychologist Claire W. Graves, who feels like the human mind will develop the capacity to see that complexity, to work creatively with the challenges, and to create a positive human future. So I, um, I'm a natural optimist. The problems are huge, but I think uh, our best minds and our full emotions can give us positive and hopeful ways forward. Yeah, that's a very optimistic thought and um, hope for the next generation and the need for them to be creative problem solvers. Any closing thoughts for us about living a great life? Well, I think uh, it's, it's always good to uh, expose ourselves to a wide range of people and ideas and places, uh, whether it's travel or reading or theater or cinema. There, there are many ways of doing this. And it's always good to attach ourselves to uh, people who've been resourceful and successful, uh, sometimes mentors, sometimes friends, colleagues, uh, partners, so that... Uh, I think uh, to continue to live with hope, hope and courage. I, in fact, I was just reading uh, one of Martin Luther King's sermons, probably from his church in Atlanta, on the, the tension between fear and courage and, uh, and encouraging people to recognize what there is to be fearful for, but uh, to rally our own individual and communal courage to tackle those things that we fear. I think it's very important. been listening to Your True North with Cindy Camp. The opinions expressed on today's episode are not necessarily those of WXAV 88.3 FM, St. Xavier University, or the producers of Your True North. For a copy of today's program, you can download it as a podcast by visiting yourtruenorth.com.
www.podcasts.com. Thank you very much for listening to Your True North.